I'd like to put a calendar up this morning as we begin. Most of us live our lives by calendars, don't we? <laughs> and here's the question. If you, were to, if you were to ask people, if you were to go out today and ask people, what day do people worship God? I'm guessing most people would say Sunday, right? Sunday is the day we worship God. But really, maybe a better answer would the calendar would look like this. It's, it's every day. In fact, that's the title of this sermon, Monday to Saturday Worship. And we, I'm glad that you're here worshiping God today. We do gather as a body to worship God on Sunday, but it's, that's not the only day. And the passage that we're going to look at today, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6, is going to fill that out. So I invite your attention there. If you've got a Bible or a phone, some device you want to look up the Scripture with, we have been working through the book of Hebrews since the spring, actually, and now we're down to three sermons left. Today and two more, we come to Hebrews 13, 1 to 6. We're going to learn about... Monday through Saturday worship today. So let me read that passage for us. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? This is the word of God. So setting the stage, the context for Hebrews chapter 13. This chapter, Hebrews 13, really introduces the, the final section of Hebrews. It transitions from the end of chapter 12 to answer the question, what is acceptable worship or service in God's eyes? It's interesting, already in the call to worship this morning, I talked about the most popular words that are used for worship in the, the one in the Old Testament, Hebrew, and in the New Testament, Greek. But there are other words that are used for worship. And in fact, in this passage, that word in chapter 12, verse 28, that is used for worship when it says, let us worship God acceptably, can mean worship, but it also can mean service. It gives you the idea of both worship and service. So let me put that verse back up so you can uh, see it. 
We covered this a couple of weeks ago. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That's a great translation, but it also could just as legitimately be translated, let us serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. Well, the question is, what does it look like to serve God acceptably? What does it look like to worship God acceptably? Well, he makes the statement in verse 28, but now as we get to chapter 13, it pushes forward. And it's like you can take that arrow, you could draw an arrow physically in your Bible from worship God acceptably in 1228 to the beginning of chapter 13. And now we're going to get several ways that we can worship God acceptably. In fact, it's, it's more than just in verses 1 to 6. It, it covers much of chapter 13. But today, we're just going to take this one section. And in this section, we are going to learn what true worship is. So I've organized this today. Uh, normally in our outline, we'll have point like one or two, maybe two points or three points or whatever. But we're not, we don't have numbers today, so I, don't, I hope you don't get like jittery or nervous. But we're just going to take a week, Monday through Saturday, each one of these commands for one day of the week, or as it is uh, on your outline, if you've got the outline sheet, I think it says this week's agenda. Okay, so let's talk about this week's agenda. On Monday, keep on loving the family of God. Keep on loving the family of God. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now, I don't usually give Greek words in a, in a sermon because most people don't know Greek. And I, my philosophy is, like when I go to the doctor, I don't want the doctor to explain in great technical terms all stuff that I don't understand. I want them to tell me what's wrong and what I need to do with it. And that's usually what I do. But it's interesting, sometimes there are Greek words that you might recognize and you might not even know. So for instance, let's think about football. Let's think about a team, the NFL, that is a really, really good team that made the Super Bowl last year and they wear green jerseys. Anybody know who I'm talking about? <laughs> Well, they do a lot of booing in that city as well. Philadelphia, the Philadelphia. Philadelphia is called the city of what? Brotherly love. And it comes from the Greek. The philos, that's the love, and adelphos, that's brother. So this is a brotherly love. It's a family love. It's the kind of love that you have for your actual nuclear family. That's the kind of love that should characterize. And it's interesting that Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, by the way. Isn't it? I don't sense a lot of brotherly love from them. But anyway, this is not a command to feel warm and fuzzy towards other Christians. Sometimes we think of love as, as that. In fact, there's another word used for, for love, a different word that's used for love in the New Testament, but it's tied in with what we should do with brothers and sisters. And it, 
for instance, in 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. That's what brotherly, sisterly love is. We love in the family of God. We meet each other's needs. Tuesday, don't forget hospitality. Verse 2 says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, this angels without knowing it, that might be a reference back to the Old Testament to Abraham. There was an instance in Genesis 18 when Abraham had three angelic visitors, and he didn't know who they were. It turns out later that one of them was Yahweh himself, and, and they promised to Abraham that he and his wife Sarah, even though they were old, were going to have a child. So maybe the writer's thinking about that, like, hey, here's some angels that visited him. Now, the writer's not saying that every time you show hospitality, every time you open your home up for, to give someone a meal or a place to stay overnight, that it's automatically an angel. In fact, some of us probably can remember times we had people in our house that weren't angels. But he's saying it might be true. And I, I don't know about this. I'm, I'm not the kind of person that, like, sees a demon under every rock or an angel under every rock. I do believe this may have happened to me one time in Virginia. I was single. I shared an apartment with another guy. And at our church there, uh, a guy just showed up. I mean, it, it wasn't like he, like, flew in from the sky or something, but a guy just walked up one day, just out of, we don't, we don't know where he kind of came from. We thought he might kind of be a drifter. And so uh, the pastor asked me and my roommate, because we had a couch and, may, and we might even had a third bedroom in the apartment, would we be willing to let this guy stay with us for a while? So we did. And he kind of helped around the church for a few days. He did some practical stuff and everything, and he, honestly, he really got on our nerves. Uh, he was not easy to, to communicate with, or this and that and the other, and we, were, we felt like, hey, we're letting this guy stay here, and he's kind of uh, demanding things, and this and that and the other, and then one day, he was just gone. I mean, like, he, in the morning we left to go to work or whatever, and then we never saw him again or never heard from him again. I don't know. It might have been just a drifter, but I, I wondered about this passage afterwards. I thought, you know, maybe God was working in our hearts trying to teach us how selfish we really were or something, and so he allowed this, this angel to come in and live with us a few. I, I don't know. All I know is don't Neglect to show hospitality because you might be entertaining an angel. In those days, hospitality, I think, was even more important than it is today because the, the inns that they had were very expensive and they had bad reputations. They could be dangerous. So you, 
the, the traveling evangelists, those that were going out and sharing the, the gospel message, when they would come to a new city, someone would need to host them. And, and I think that's kind of what the reference here is to. First Peter is also, like Hebrews, written to people that suffer. And listen to these verses, how in back-to-back verses, the writer of First Peter combines the same two things, love and hospitality. First Peter 4, 8, 9, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. As we walk through this passage, I, I, I told you the the literary context, how this goes from chapter 12, verse 28, into chapter 13. There's another kind of context, and that's the historical context. That's the background. That's what's going on out in the culture. And for the original readers, they were being persecuted for their faith. And some, they, they, they knew some that had been imprisoned. And we know later, some of them are actually potentially going to give their lives because there were martyrs in the first century. So the, the, there was great pressure on these Christians. They were suffering. They were persecuted. And think about it. When you're in that context of being persecuted, it's always important to love each other, but maybe more important then. It's always important to show hospitality, but, but maybe more important then because you know, whenever there's persecution, there's also informants, right? And people could have said, oh, well, we don't want to show hospitality because we don't know who this person is. Maybe they're an informant. And he's saying, hey, don't, don't neglect hospitality. That's not the context we live in. We're not a persecuted church, but I'd like you to think, how can I show hospitality? What, what does hospitality look like for me? How do I relate to new people that I might see at church or in the neighborhood? What about our missionaries? When the missionaries that live abroad, when they come back and visit and they're in the States for a few days or a few weeks, are there opportunities that I could reach out and show hospitality to them? Wednesday. Remember those who suffer as if, verse 3. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, practical sympathy and help for people in prison was incredibly important. I... I haven't ever been in prison. I mean, I've been to prisons, but I haven't ever been imprisoned in jail. I imagine if you're in jail, especially if you're in jail because you're a Christian and you're being persecuted for it, you probably would feel very lonely, very ostracized, very much in need of emotional support. But in this context, they also needed physical support. The, it wasn't the custom of the, the, the first century uh, prison uh, jailers to feed or take care of the prisoners. That was left up to their family and friends. And so that's what the first century church did. The, the, the widows and, and some of the younger children would, would frequently be at the prisons making food for the prisoners. And maybe the church leaders 
were there too to spend the night with them. So, and that's, that's what he's saying. He said, remember those that are in prison just, just, like, just like you were there. Now, every year today, not back then, but every year right now, we believe that there are thousands of Christians that are put to death because of their faith. It's really hard to get an accurate count of how many Christians actually die every year. But the experts who work on these things believe that it's thousands every year. They estimate that half of all the believers who've ever given their life for their faith for Jesus have done so in the, in the past century, some 35 million the point is, persecution is still happening today. You and I got up this morning, walked, rode our motorcycle, or our, got in our car to this church service, and none of us worried that we were going to be persecuted for it. But much of the church all throughout the world doesn't have that privilege. Persecution takes a lot of forms. According to the World Evangelical Alliance, approximately 100 million Christians in 60 countries are denied fundamental human rights for one reason. That's because they name the name of Jesus as their Savior. Now, I talked about death, but it can happen a lot of ways. It, can, it could be a loss of job. It could be a, a career. I remember a mission trip I took to the Ukraine in, it was either it was around the year 2000, and they had come out of the Soviet Union, and I met with uh, pastors and aspiring pastors, and I talked to them about some of the things that had happened to them because of their faith in Christ. And this one man, I remember this, looking, sitting across from this one man who said he lost his job. He had a very good job, but he lost his job, and the only job that they gave him was at a hospital that treated cancer patients. And they weren't, uh, it was like he, he was uh, cleaning, mopping the floors and cleaning up and, and at, radiation was new at that time and, they, and it was dangerous. So, so they couldn't get anybody else to do those jobs. That's the kind of thing he did. There, there were beatings and intimidation. I remember a man telling me how they were going up uh, into the mountains, into new villages to try to tell people about Christ. But the Orthodox priest told the people when they come and talk about Jesus, beat them with sticks. I mean, th this, is, this is happening in our world today. Sometimes people are being ostracized by family members. I, one of our missionary partners uh, told us about somebody that was really starting to follow Christ. Their family found out about it and then phew, ostracized them completely. Now, if, for instance, Pastor Corey or I, if we were arrested for being a pastor or if one of our missionaries were put in jail, I think most of us would be really praying about that and interested about it. 
But the truth is, it, the fact that we don't know the names of those to whom it is happening doesn't lessen the impact of it. It is happening all over the world. So while it was important for them in the first century, because they probably they knew people who were in prison, whether we know them or not, he says, continue to remember them. And the two very, very important words are as if. Remember them as as if it were you. Paul was a prisoner for the Lord himself, the Apostle Paul. And he talked about this issue in 2 Timothy 1, 16 and 17. He said, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. And then in verse 16, he said, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. That's Wednesday. Thursday, on Thursday, let's honor marriage. Verse four. In fact, verse four actually has Thursdays and Fridays words for us. Let's read verse four. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, their world did not share the high view of marriage that God's, God shares with us in the Bible. And that is that marriage is God-ordained. He created it. He designed it. He designed for one man and one woman to be married, and it's honorable. Our world, just like their world, doesn't honor marriage, does it? It doesn't lift marriage up as sacred and holy, as something that you give your life to, that you stay in, that you honor. Today, what's happening in our society doesn't look anything like what the Bible sets forth as marriage. People have uh, decided to use their sexual urges and desires in almost any way they want to, right? It doesn't matter whether it's male, female. It doesn't matter if it's one or more. I'm going to do what I want to do. That kind of is the mantra. And, And yet God's Word hasn't changed. God's Word hasn't changed. Marriage should be honored by all. That word honor is a really important word. It's honorable for a man and woman to be married and to stay married and to humbly serve your, your spouse and to stay, uh, to, to, to live life together. And if God gives you children, to teach and train them what uh, honoring Christ means. The word honor indicates respect or value. It indicates preciousness. So we won't read them, but some of the other instances which this very word is used in the New Testament include Acts 5.34 when it speaks of a respected teacher or 2 Peter 1.4 when it speaks of the promises of God as being precious. And even in 1 Peter 1.19, it speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ as being precious. You were redeemed not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the word honor. 
And the writer of Hebrews says, honor marriage. Marriage is not just a piece of paper. It's a covenant. It's a God-ordained relationship. It's precious and it's very valuable. And not only honor marriage, but honor the marriage bed. Keep the marriage bed pure. Bible speaks very clearly and straightforwardly about sex. Sex is not a bad thing. It's not a dirty thing. It's a clean and wonderful and God-ordained thing in the context of marriage, but only in the context of marriage. Keep the marriage bed pure. That word Pure is translated as pure here by the NIV, the ESV as unstained, New American Standard as undefiled. Sex within marriage is beautiful. It's pure, it's clean, it's godly. Sex within marriage with a man and woman. Related to this, as we stay in verse 4, is protect biblical sexuality. The verse says, uh, keep the marriage bed pure. Why? For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So adultery is sexual activity outside of marriage. Um, Any illicit sexual activity with a married person is adultery. But God's going to judge adultery, but also sexually immoral. That expands it out to to any kind of illicit sexual activity. Let me make this note about pornography. Though it's not a physical act, it too is a destroyer of intimacy in marriage. It too dishonors the marriage bed. And I think it would be one of the things that would be included in sexual immorality. Sexual purity has always been important for God's people. It always will be. But again, thinking about their context, some are in jail. Maybe the spouse has been jailed. And so maybe you might not ever see them again or you don't know how long you would see them. And he's saying, wait a minute, Still, be, still honor the marriage bed, regardless of the context. And then there's one more, and that's Saturday. Find your security in God rather than in money. Verses 5 and 6. Start with verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Sexual sin that he just talked about in verse 4 and covetousness or greed in verse five, they might seem to be very, very different from each other, and in many ways they are, but a commentator, George Guthrie, identifies a core element that they have in common. Listen to these words. Both the sexually immoral and those greedy for money pursue a myopic self-gratification that takes them outside the bounds of God's provision. Such greed amounts to accusing God of incompetence 
as a provider of one's most basic needs and therefore is incompatible with commitment to God himself. So that's, that's where they're in common. It's like, I want what I want for me. And whether that's in a sexual context or whether that's in a, a money context, like I'm not going to view money as just I need it, I'm going to meet needs, I'm going to be generous, and I'm going to help others, but I'm, I'm going to try to keep acquiring, I'm going to try to keep getting more, I'm going to try to keep getting bigger and better and keep up with people in our culture. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. If you will hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich will fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. How do you view money? How do you view possessions? Are you content with what God has provided for you? Are you always thinking and scheming and maybe sacrificing to try to have more? Now, the basis for this um, promise that we should be contentment is, is grounded in the character of God. Look at as, as it continues. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. In other words, we have all that we need in Christ. We have all that we need in God. He is going to be with us. And there are two Old Testament quotations that support this point. Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh, beginning in verse 6 be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid because of them or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And the second one is cited in Hebrews thirteen six. We go back into Hebrews. So we may say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And this comes from Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. The Lord is with me. I'll not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. So let me ask you this question. You've watched us as we've talked about this week's agenda. Do you think we should, we should only uh, do these things on certain days? Should we only love the family of God on Mondays? Or only be hospitable on Tuesdays? Only remember sufferers on Wednesdays? 
Only honor marriage on Thursdays. Only embrace biblical sexuality on Fridays. Only be content on Saturdays. You think that's what I'm trying to say this morning? (laughs) Uh, No. Let's, Let's picture it this way. Let's take the calendar and let's, let's summarize God's word this way. True worship is not just a Sunday activity, but an everyday lifestyle. True worship, it's not just what you do when you walk in these doors, but it's how we live Monday and how we live Tuesday and how we live Wednesday how we live Thursday, how we live Friday, how we live Saturday. We worship God at our kitchen table, at our office cubicle, in our bedrooms, in our neighborhoods, in front of our screens. When we spend our money, our wallets, our purses, our bank cards, we worship God in all ways. We worship God in the school classroom when we go to school and in the school lunchroom and at, at free time. We worship God all the time. We do it all for the glory of God. As, as one writer says, beds and bankrolls cannot be separated from theology. So... We do it for the glory of God, but some of you might be thinking, wow, those are really high standards. (laughs) How can I do that? And the truth is we do it not only for the glory of God, but we do it as we are enabled by the grace of God. This is where we need a savior. This is where we need Jesus. Because all of these different activities require really making decisions that aren't normal for human beings. Because as human beings, we're selfish. We want things our way. We want things to be about us. We don't want to take the time and energy to show hospitality or love to others or uh, whatever the case may be. We need the grace of God. We need a Savior. And the good news of the gospel is this morning, we do have a Savior, Jesus. He fulfilled everything perfectly, and he knew that we would not fulfill everything perfectly, that we would sin and fall and fail. And that's why he came and lived and died on a cross, was buried and rose again to pay for our wrong and enable us to live for the glory of God. So really, if you got a calendar, I don't know if you can put this in your outlook or not. I don't know if you can just roll it over there, but it would probably, our worship calendar probably would look something like that, right? Keep on uh, loving the family of God. That's every day. And don't forget hospitality. And remember those who suffer as if. And Honor marriage and protect biblical sexuality and find your security in God rather than money. When Corey Ten Boom was a child, her family prayed one morning that God would allow somebody to come in their shop. They had a they had a, a shop and 
they, they had bills that were due. And, and they prayed that God would send them somebody. And that day, a man walked in and said, I need a watch. And he said, I've just bought a, an expensive watch from, and he named who he bought it from, and it was a Christian merchant. And he said, but the watch is no good. So he picked out a watch, and he bought it, and, and Corey was excited because this, this watch was going to pay their bills. But then when her dad heard that they had, he had just bought a watch from a Christian merchant, he said, can I see it? And he, and he, he showed him the, the watch. He handed it to him, and he looked at it. And as he looked at it, he realized that it was, it, the watch was a, a, a great watch. It wasn't a cheap watch. It was just one minor thing. And he said, oh, this can be fixed really easily. So he gave the man that watch and he also refund. He said, you don't need to buy my watch. So he refunded the money and gave him his watch back. And when he walked out the store, Corey asked her dad, why, why did you do that? You know, we need that we, you know we need that money to pay our bills. He said, Corey, there's a difference between blessed money and not blessed money. <laughs> and a few days later, another man walked into the shop and purchased the most expensive watch that was made at that time, which actually was enough not only, not only to pay for their bills, but to fund Corey Ten Boom herself to go to Switzerland and be trained as a watchmaker for two years. I think the question is, who is first place in our life? And I want to leave you with the words of C.S. Lewis. He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. True worship is not just a Sunday activity, but it's an everyday lifestyle. Will you bow your heads with me, please?